Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Our call to worship this morning comes from Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Collectively, we assemble from the wisdom of the past a vision for the future, a worldview shaped by mutual flourishing. Our spiritual leaders interpret this prophecy as the choice between the deadly road of materialism that threatens the land and the people and the soft path of wisdom, respect, and reciprocity that is held in the teachings of the first fire. It is said that if the people choose the green path, then all races will go forward together to light the eighth and final fire of peace and brotherhood, forging the great nation that was foretold long ago. Supposing we are able to turn from destruction and choose the green path, what will it take to light the eighth fire? Fires do not make themselves. The earth provides the materials and the laws of thermodynamics. Humans must provide the work and the knowledge and the wisdom to use the power of fire for good. The spark itself is a mystery, but we know that before the fire can be lit, we have to gather the tinder, the thoughts, and the practices that will nurture the flame. There was this familiar moment standing outside of each hospital room. I'd foam my hands and try to take a deep breath before I gently knocked on the door. The best and worst part of the job was that I never knew what was going to happen next. I'd get this little pit in my stomach, wanting to be helpful, hoping for something interesting. More often than not, all of this buildup was anticlimactic. I'd end up feeling like rent-a-granddaughter, just keeping chatty people company while they were bored out of their minds. And if I had had even an ounce more compassion, (laughs) I could have seen how that was helpful and important. Instead, my supervisor described my work in this way. Ambivalence about the role of chaplain was evident throughout. And the day-to-day work of visiting patients was a challenge for Stephanie much of the year. (laughs) It's an actual quote. Don't worry, I wasn't always the worst. (laughs) One day, I hit the jackpot twice. I spent a year working as a hospital chaplain, and while I was unfairly quick to dismiss many of the cases, sometimes I really got into it, and this was one of those days. Let me tell you what I loved about being a chaplain. I didn't have to fit into anyone's theological box. In fact, we weren't supposed to preach any kind of theology or ideology. There was no idolatry of one tradition over another, one right way to do things. 
While this level of open-mindedness was a challenge for some, I found this amount of freedom absolutely liberating. So, standing at the door, foam my hands, knock gently, and there's a woman, middle-aged, sitting in her hospital bed, calling me in. Hi, I'm Stephanie, one of the chaplains here, I'd always say. And then I would use the magic line, the secret of chaplaincy. <laughs> Karen. <laughs> I don't know, I discovered this after a year, so I'm telling you the secret now. Please make liberal use of this phrase in your own life to start every conversation that you don't know how to start. I understand you've been going through a lot lately. And you just leave it there. Balls in their court, they can run any direction they'd like. Now you might think that their terminal cancer would be a good place to start but they'd come back with anxiety about who was feeding their cat now that they were in the hospital. This day I hear, yeah, it's been pretty rough, but I know God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Already, my brain is firing. I love taking this one apart. I've practically got a manual for it, but remember that unpredictability. She zigs just when I'm about to zag. So I know that God won't give me more than I can handle. That means that all my nurses and doctors are giving me the best care there is. My community will love me and surround me. My family will be supported through this. God will not leave my side, and this will turn out all right in the end. And it was so sincere. I was used to people trying to talk themselves into something they felt like they should believe in. But this woman was solid, radiant almost. I have no idea what she needed me for, but I sure needed her. I needed to see that something that I considered absolutely useless and often harmful could actually bring comfort. I needed to see what it's like when your faith is actually working for you and the strange places we can fill with hope when we need to. We had a nice chat, checked her off the list in my pocket, and I went down the hall. Same thing, foam, breathe, knock. Hello, I'm Stephanie, one of the chaplains here. I understand you've been going through a lot lately. Yeah, this woman says. Hands fiddling with the edge of her blanket, looking dejectedly at the potted plant on the windowsill, wrapped in an annoyingly bright ribbon. I know God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I'm smart enough this time to pause and see where this is going. But I sure don't think I'm handling this very well. I don't know what he was thinking giving me this much. Maybe he knows something I don't, but I am sure not up to this challenge. I'm scared and I'm worried and this is just way too much for me to handle. Is it terrible to admit that I was excited? Because <laughs> this moment is what I was ready for. This moment I could do. We had a brief conversation about how she was feeling, how she felt like her faith was failing, and ultimately how she felt like she was letting God down for not handling her terminal disease better, as though she needed that guilt trip on top of everything else. It was clear that the God she had spent so many years worshiping was now beginning to crumble. But these conversations were great because I got to use my second favorite chaplain line. 
Once we had sort of established that maybe her current ideas of God were no longer as useful as they used to be, I'd ask her to dream just for a minute and ask the simple question, why don't you tell me about the kind of God you want to believe in? And it was always this moment when folks had to stop and actually think, almost like they had never really considered it before. And then slowly and thoughtfully, little things would trickle out. I want a God who surrounds me with people who love me. I want a God who surprises me with unexpected joys. I want a God who makes the world a better place. I want a God that I can talk to when I'm worried. The lists would vary, but one thing was the same. By the end, there was a sense of peace and ease. You could see it in their relaxed bodies. A sense that maybe God wasn't as fanciful or fictional or far away as once thought. And that is the kind of God I could want to believe into. The sermon this morning is heavily influenced by a recent paper presented by my friend and colleague, Jeffrey Speaks, at the 2019 Convocation of UU Studies in Baltimore, Maryland. I want to start by sharing a story. It's called Acornology, and I think you've heard it before. And it goes a little something like this. Once upon a time... In a not-so-far-away land, there was a kingdom of acorns. All right, just imagine this vast field of acorns nestled at the foot of a grand old oak tree. Since the citizens of this kingdom were modern and fully westernized acorns, they went about their business with purposeful energy. And since they were midlife baby boomer acorns, they engaged in a lot of self-help courses. There were seminars called Getting All You Can Out of Your Shell. There were woundedness and recovery groups for acorns who had been bruised in their original fall from the tree. There were retreats and spas for oiling and polishing those shells and various acornopathic therapies to enhance longevity and well-being. One day, in the midst of this kingdom, there suddenly appeared a naughty little stranger who apparently dropped out of the blue by a passing bird. He was odd, capless, and dirty, making an immediate negative impression on his fellow acorns. And crouched beneath the oak tree, he stammered out a strange and wild tale, pointing upward at the tree. He spoke to all who would listen to him and said, We are that. Delusional thinking, obviously, the other acorns concluded, but one or two of them continued to engage him in conversation. So tell us, how would we become that tree? Well, he said, pointing downward, it has something to do with going into the ground and cracking open the shell. 
Insane, they responded, totally morbid. Why, then we wouldn't be acorns anymore. How many of you have ever felt a bit like this odd, dirty, capless little acorn, crouched at the foot of what we could be, pointing upward, saying, we are that? A couple weeks ago, I mentioned the idea in religious circles that these different religious traditions are paths up the same mountain, or maybe paths up different peaks in the same mountain range. Today, what I'd like to do, and since Reverend Justin isn't here, I feel like I need to use this phrase. This morning, what I'd like, what I'd like to do is unpack that a bit more, unpack this a bit more together. So this little acorn pointing at the tree, these paths up the mountain that crack open the shell. They remind me of that Buddhist teaching about the finger pointing at the moon, where the Buddha addressing a group of students of monks says, monks, the teaching is merely a vehicle to describe the truth. Don't mistake it for the truth itself. A finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. The finger is needed to know where to look for the moon But if you mistake the finger for the moon itself, you will never know the real moon. The teaching is like a raft that carries you to the other shore. The raft is needed, but the raft is not the other shore. An intelligent person would not carry the raft around on his head after making it across to the other shore. Use the raft to cross to the other shore, but don't hang on to it as your property. Do not become caught in the teaching. You must be able to let it go. That quote there is really the crux of my sermon this morning. If you caught that, you can like go make your grocery list or something. You're you're good to go. So what I want us to spend some time with this morning is the notion of idolatry the worshiping of idols. Idolatry is, for me at least, one of the most interesting and useful ideas in religion and theology, and it is, unfortunately, the idea that is most often misunderstood. It's the idea that has the worst reputation, even worse than sin, and that's saying a lot in UU circles. What I want to offer for your consideration is that idolatry, and specifically the commitment to break idols, that is to say, the breaking down part of this month's theme, is one of the core movements and core commitments of our theological heritage as Unitarian Universalists. And it is the engine of much of our theology and much of our faith today. But let's pull back a bit. What do we know about idolatry? Go ahead, shout it out. False idols, I heard golden calf. It's like we're on family feud here. Show me golden calf. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) maybe we have hazy recollections of that story, right? That story from the Hebrew Bible where the people made a statue out of gold and worshipped it as God. And maybe others of you remember that injunction against this sort of thing that was right at the top of the first commandments that we see in the Hebrew Bible when it says that God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. 
You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is scary stuff. This is hard stuff. It's difficult. Right? We hear those words. And reading it today can seem kind of strange and maybe even a little bit silly from our modern perspective, right? All that fuss over a statue and really one that probably wasn't even that big to begin with. We're talking maybe garden gnome sized, all right? We might ask, quite reasonably, what's the, what's the big deal? These stories are, for many of us, the basis of our understanding of idolatry. Wrapped up in words about a jealous God and images of a shiny golden cow, let's be honest, they're kind of hard to take seriously from where we sit today. God kind of comes across as a bit of a child throwing a tantrum. And it's a pity It's a pity that that is what we've received because underneath that language and imagery is a message that seems to cut across religious traditions, time, and space. You see this message in Judaism, you see it in Christianity, you see it in Islam, from you shall have no other gods before me to there is no God but Allah. And you see it in Buddhism in the quote about the finger, the moon, the raft. You see it in Hinduism too. Though things there are a little bit different, my people went in a slightly different direction, and we can talk about that at another time. But there are many, there are many different ideas about God, then and now. But the awareness of idolatry endures. And what all these teachings point at is that as human beings, we have a tendency to get confused. We try to create things that we claim are God when they're not. Things that we say are the ultimate when, in fact, they just get between us and ultimate reality. We seem drawn to replace the ultimate with something of our human design and therefore human control. In other words, idolatry isn't so much about jealous gods and statues as it is about replacing the ultimate, the transcendent, that something greater than us with something of our own design. We take something finite and we claim that it's infinite. We try to put reality in a box and subjugate the world to our will and then say that our creation is all that there is. When I say it that way, it sounds a bit like Frankenstein or the Wizard of Oz and it seems like a really bad idea, doesn't it? And it is. What we replace God with is always ultimately too small. And this idea absolutely fascinates me. And in preaching about it, I am inviting you to join me in this fascination. Check this out, folks. This notion of our tendency toward idolatry cuts across time and space. Thousands of years ago, as people were writing these sacred texts, the authors of those texts, humans, the whole lot of them, saw in the psychology of human beings this tendency. They saw it in the Middle East, they saw it in India, and then time and time again after that, other human beings read those texts. We heard these stories and for thousands of years said, yep, that's us, we do that. 
and kept passing those stories down, kept teaching those teachings, kept this notion alive. Yep, we do that. And when we do that, it all goes sideways. And so not only do we pass down these stories, not only do we hold up a warning sign age after age warning us about the human tendency to try to take for ourselves powers that eclipse our own, but we also in every age have other people, other human beings who take up the work of opposing this idolatry. People who take up the work of saying, let go. Let our human powers be limited. Let us live in a way that is worthy to receive the blessings of this life, of this planet, of this earth. This is our inheritance as Unitarian Universalists. The breaking down of idols in what we believe and the continual effort to build up something that helps us to go down into the earth and come back up as a grand old oak tree. All right. This is all great and fine, and it is all pretty abstract. You might be saying, who cares? I don't believe in God. This isn't my fight. What's idolatry got to do with me? It's a good question. And in reply, first I will say, friends, that I also don't believe in the God that you don't believe in. Yeah, think about that one for a moment. I also don't believe in the God that you don't believe in. And if my seminary experience was representative of anything, fewer people really do believe in that God than we maybe sometimes think. But just because the model that we grew up with no longer holds does not mean that we replace it with things that are too small to do what we're asking of them. In other words... I'm asking that question that Stephanie asked us. Tell me about the kind of God you want to believe in. Do you ask yourself some version of this question? It's like a 3 or a 4 a.m. question for me. Who is the God we believe in? Who is the God we need now when we don't believe that anything or anyone supernatural is going to come and save us? Who or how is the God we want when we know we have to roll up our sleeves and fix the problems we've created or inherited or are just coming to see? What is the God we want when we can almost see and feel the beloved community that is right around the corner when on a quiet day we can hear her breathing? Who or what or how is that God? the one that focuses our hearts on that which has worth. Are you curious about this? If so, let me offer you these four questions shamelessly adapted from a website about being a good Christian mom. I, I know, I know. I wanted to dismiss them. Doing research for sermons takes you into some weird places. But then I read them and I thought, you know, these are, these are actually pretty good. So here you go. Here's our homework for the next week, maybe the next month. Four questions to see where you might be carrying some idols in your life. Number one, where are you willing to compromise your beliefs, values, or most deeply held principles? 
When something or someone asks us to turn our backs on what we have held to be most true, it's possible that there is an idol in the making. Put it differently, we've all heard that phrase, everyone has their price. When we have a price, we're making a god out of money and worshiping it instead of holding true to our principles. Second question, where do you get angry if you can't do it or won't get it? Where do you get angry? The places we act out are pretty telling about what we value. Pay careful attention here. Question number three, do you value it over people? In other words, where are you willing to steamroll relationship to get or accomplish what you want? For example, is being on time so important that you browbeat your family or colleagues to be sure that you accomplish that, that task? And the fourth question, does it push you closer to God or pull you further away? Now this is an admittedly hard question to answer if we are still asking ourselves about the nature of the God we're looking for. But this is a place to play, to experiment, to pay attention, to follow your nose. Are you moving closer to feeling more, to being more in touch with the source of your being? Or is there something that you do that helps you to numb out more, to be further away? This muscle of knowing where we are clinging to idols is so important to our work right now. There is a yearning here, a growing desire to be free of what binds us and to make real in the world what we long for in our hearts. This work of breaking and building is exactly what we're engaged in right now, taking down the walls of white supremacy, of racism, of transphobia, of environmental extraction and destruction, building up a world where all creatures of the earth and sky come together and lift our voices high. This is our work, friends. May it be so, and amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.